0: Four things every Jesus follower needs to know. Now, there's a lot of things you need to know, but these are four that, 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 that stick out, particularly in view of the Scripture that we're in. You see, some parts of Scripture are like a fine gem or like a fine diamond. You don't just glance at it. You look at it from different angles and, and under different light. You try to see the, the various facets of the stone. And that's what we're going to do with Mark chapter 4 today. Last week, we looked at it through the lens of what does it teach us about God's kingdom and the working of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to look back and we're going to ask questions about what does it teach us about how things work in the kingdom. This scripture in in Mark chapter 4 is worth a double take here. It's it's worth, worth looking at it again from a slightly different angle. So on your life notes, there's a little section there that says a quick look back, and I'm going to do the best I can to explain some of the, the key parables that Jesus taught that were given here in Mark chapter 4. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that we come up against parables. What we've seen so far as we've been making our way to the book of Mark, in these first three chapters, is we've seen that Mark has been establishing Jesus' authority, It starts with his baptism by John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon him and empowers him for his ministry. And the voice of God, the Father comes down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes immediately. That's a key word in Mark's gospel. We pointed out before the word immediately. And Jesus is taken immediately after his baptism by John out into the desert to be tested by the enemy. He passed the test, and then he begins to perform miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And these miracles show the authority of his message, the authority of his teaching. Because, as we said, if you've been here for the past twelve weeks, Jesus came to. Okay, let's try it again. <laughs> Jesus came to teach. All right, okay. I know it's early. I mean, well, it's nine thirty, or not quite nine thirty. Jesus came to teach, and because, but because he would, he would teach and he would do miracles and some of these miracles he did on on religious days on on the sabbath and the 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 religious leaders didn't like it they they kind of got upset with him so upset that they they devised a plot to kill him and now with the establishment of of jesus and his and his spiritual authority the shift comes in mark's gospel to what he has to say about the kingdom and it begins with these stories, these, these short, pithy stories that, that we call parables. And I told you last week, a good, a good definition of parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's not original to me, but it's a good, it's a good way to look at it. And he comes to these parables, and these parables are the, are the most basic. Uh, this passage today could be called Christianity 101. And before you check out and say, well, I've been a Christian you know, 80 years, listen, there's something that all of us can learn. Because Jesus came to teach. teach. Good, so did I. Okay, so Jesus came to teach, and, and they can teach us through these parables, and, and he makes quite clear in this first parable that, that we have here about the, the farmer casting seed, which this is the first parable that Jesus taught according to what the, the gospel writers are telling us here. It is, it's important. It's a, foundational, it's a foundational parable because Jesus says, if you don't understand this parable you ain't going to understand the rest of them. And so again, we're going to take a double take here. They all make a big deal here about the fact that you can't understand the other parables if you don't understand this one. And so we're going to look at how does God's kingdom work here, and that's why it's important for us to take this second look. Now, I want to remind you why Jesus used parables. He used them for two reasons. The first reason that he used them was to explain what the kingdom is like. There's many times in the parables where Jesus will start a parable saying, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And he's, he uses these, these stories, these, these metaphors, these things to help us understand because the people didn't understand what God's kingdom was like. They had some misconceptions about it and they needed to understand this. He says, you want a word picture, you want an analogy, you want a, a short story. This is how my kingdom differs from the way the world's kingdoms are. This is how my kingdom differs from your misconceptions about the kingdom. This is how it differs from the, from the Old Testament laws under Moses and the, that you've been living under, all 613 of them. But there's a second reason that Jesus came and used parables, and we often miss this one. And that's because Jesus was trying to thin the herd. Wow. Wow. That kind of strikes us. What do you mean, trying to thin the herd? Well, he's trying to thin the herd. He says it himself. He told parables in order to separate out the what we call the looky loos. Is that, is that do you understand what I mean by that? Okay, good. When I had an executive officer on my last ship. He always looked at looky loos, the people that just want to kind of check it out but aren't aren't invested. They don't want to get invested. They don't want to they don't want to be involved. They don't really want to follow God. They're not serious about following God. They just see all the all the show and they want to they want to be around that. Or they're the ones that want their ears tickled. They want to see the cool miracles. They don't want to know God. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to understand God. And so when his disciples came up to him, and they said, why do you use these stories? He answers them. He says, because I'm separating out the people. There's two groups of people. And those who seriously come up to me afterwards and, and don't just say good story, but actually say, hey, master, teach me what this means. Teach me to follow the Father. He says, you're the ones you're the ones that are going to get the secrets of the kingdom. And so with that, let's take a look. Let's start at Mark chapter 4. Here we begin. Verse 1. Again, again, Jesus began to what? He began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got onto a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. By the way, we, we were part of a church church planned church start back, you know, geez, 20, 30 years ago in Virginia. It's called Water's Edge Church. There's where they got the name. We've mentioned it before that this, this kind of creates what Jesus is doing here. It kind of creates a natural amphitheater as he's uh, on the boat teaching and his voice carries across the water to this large crowd. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, and here we go, parable number one, farmer casting seed. He says listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. And we're going to see this is a certain kind of soil that he's talking about here in that part of the world. Verse 6 But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. The ground was shallow. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plant, so that it did not bear grain. Verse eight, still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, and even 100 times. And then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you've been a longtime Christian, as I know that, that, that many of the folks here are, my bet is that either you've heard or you've thought that, that this is kind of a, a description of kind of the, the super saint, the special ops Christian who goes really far, who multiplies themselves, you know, who, who's led all these people to the Lord, and, and, and that's what it's talking about here. What I want you to understand is that every seed multiplies itself many, many times. You don't just plant an avocado seed and get a tree with one avocado, do you? Hopefully you get a crop of avocado. You get more than, more than one. You don't just plant, plant a seed of grain and expect there to only be one seed on a stalk when that grain seed germinates and, and comes up. In God's world in the plant kingdom, uh, one seed produces many, many, many seeds. Now, this is a statement about fruit, not necessarily the number of people that you or I have led personally to Jesus. And that's really important because what he's saying here is that every seed that comes comes to harvest is going to have a, a multitude of, of changes. It's going to have a multitude of a difference that it makes, and that's going to show up in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's enumerated over in, uh, in Galatians, and all of these are going to show up in the fruit of Of changed lives. It's going to show up in the in the fruit that gives glory to Jesus. We're his representatives, we're his his ambassadors, and we're expected to bear fruit. Picking up at verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables. Why? So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Does Jesus want them to turn? Does he want to forgive? them? Yes, but it's a test. He's testing their seriousness about him. He's testing their seriousness about the teachings that he has. He's testing to see if, if they just want a God who just tickles their ears, a God who just interests them, or do they actually want a God to follow Do they want a Bible, a passage, a parable where where they can just decide whatever they want or they don't want to follow what God wants? Verse 13, Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Jesus is saying this is the most important of parables because if you don't understand this one, you won't be able to understand all of the others. And so he goes on and he explains it to them. He says, The farmer sows the seed. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes, takes away the word that is sown in them. Others, like seed sown in rocky places, hear the word and once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When, when, not if, but when, trouble or persecution comes because of the word they quickly fall away so they quickly grow they quickly fall verse 18 still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word but over time here's what happens but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word making it what unfruitful unfruitful Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, and even 100 times what was sown. Well, then he goes right in. He gives a second parable. He says, you know, this one's about a lamp, a lamp on a stand. He said, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? How many of you have ever gone out and bought a lamp? Did you take that lamp home and put it in the closet? Did you put it under the bed? You put the lamp in the best place so that, you can, so that you can have light, so that you can get light from the lamp. Because why? What's the purpose of the lamp? To give light, to help you see. And so what he's going to be saying about the kingdom, and we're going to see this a little bit later, is the, is the purpose of the kingdom is to expose things that are hidden. How many of you have gotten up in the middle of the night and stubbed your toe on, on something? I think we all have, multiple times. And so it's good to have that light that you, whereby you can see. And, and so this, the, the purpose in the kingdom of God is to expose things that are hidden, and it'll expose our heart. It'll expose our actions. It'll expose our hypocrisy. He says if you're going to come into the kingdom, one of the things you need to understand is that you've given up your, your right to your own secret little world where you are deciding what's right and wrong. The kingdom of God is, is like a light. It's here to expose the things of the flesh that, that we prefer to hide. So he goes on in verse 22. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And then he starts to apply it. He again says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He goes on in verse 24. He says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He basically says, This is going to expose your heart, and it's going to expose your actions, and don't waste what it is that you have. The kingdom of God is like a a lamp on a stand. And then he goes on, parable number three. He says, says It's kind of like a a summer wheat crop. He says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or not, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know. All by itself, the, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest time has come. Well, back in the first century, they didn't have these um, elaborate irrigation systems like we do. They didn't understand all of the science of agriculture and, and, and how to make things grow. And, you know, they, they didn't have chemicals and fertilizers and all that kind of stuff. And, and so the farmer planted, and then he hoped and prayed. The early and latter uh, rains would come, and he'd pray that there wasn't locusts or or other pests that would eat the crop. He'd, He'd go through. He could pull out the weeds to a certain extent. But he basically planted the seed, made sure it was in the right place. But other than that, it was out of his control. And what Jesus is saying here, basically, is the kingdom of God is basically out of our control. Yes, we're called to participate in the kingdom of God, but it's up to him. It's up to him what happens in the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of Christians, and sometimes I'm one of them that tries to control the kingdom of God. You know, we like to be in control, don't we? But it's like growing the crop. You plant it, and later you're going to harvest it. But in between, God is at work. You can't speed it up, and, and we can't slow it down. And then he gives a fourth parable. We've seen the parable of a farmer casting seed. We've seen a parable of the lamp that's put on a stand. We've seen the the parable here about the wheat crop that grows. And now our parable about a tiny, tiny seed. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Now, today when we talk about something that's, that's minuscule and small, we've got different phrases to, to describe it. But in their culture in that time, a mustard seed was a pretty daggone small seed. And when they wanted to describe something small, they'd say it's as small as a mustard seed. You know, today we might say an atom or, or a nanoparticle or, or something else. Well, back then, this was their description, was this tiny, tiny seed that could grow into a relatively big bush. And he's saying that the kingdom of God may start out small, but it can become something great. Something really big comes out of it. And so these are the four, the, the four parables. And then notice in verse 33, it says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke what? He spoke the word. Okay, listen very carefully here. It's very important to understand this. When we hear the parable of the sower that, that, that we're going to look at in a few moments in the different types of soil, the first thing that comes to our mind, the farmer casts a seed, and we think of it that, that we're just only talking about an invitation to God's kingdom. We, we think we're only talking about, about witnessing or what we call witnessing or, or sharing our faith. And then people respond differently. And, and please don't get me wrong, that's included. That's included, but it's whole, it's whole way more than that. You know, Jesus came proclaiming his kingdom, his kingdom, and a kingdom isn't something that's just once and then it's all done. It's something that pervades a life, a lifetime, and in a lifetime and eternity for the believer. You know, some listened, some grew up quickly, and some choked, and, and, and some bore fruit, but, but here's what I want you to hear. The casting of the seed, the word referred to here is not just the invitation to follow Jesus and come to the kingdom. It's the word of the kingdom. It's everything about the kingdom, and this is very important to grasp because we tend to take this and, and think it's only about witnessing when it applies to everything about the word of God. It says up there, with many other parables, he spoke the word to them. Well, What were these other parables about? Were they about witnessing only? No, no. There are parables about forgiveness and the, the need for forgiveness. There were parables about how to pray, like you think of the, the widow that goes to the unjust judge and, and won't leave him alone, just pastors him and pastors him and pastors him until he gives her what she wants. There's, there's parables about the rewards of the kingdom. These are parables about how the kingdom works. And you take all of his parables, they aren't just an invitation to follow God. They're statements for those of us that that do want to follow God about how we're supposed to live after we make that decision to follow God. And so the various responses we see are are the responses not of people just first hearing the, 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 the message of God, but people that are on the journey because all that Jesus taught, all that he taught is the word. This first parable includes sharing your faith, but includes the rest of the kingdom. So with that said, let's look at how this applies. Four things that every Jesus follower needs to know. The first is this, why some won't listen and others don't last. Fill those in if you're following along with your notes. Why some won't listen and others don't last. That's what the parable of the sower is talking about. He's explaining in the kingdom why some people, when you present the word of God to them, they just, they hear it, and it goes in one ear and out the other. Or they'll respond, they'll show a little bit of interest, and, and they start out well, but they end poorly. And if I could just take a moment, a little sidebar here, that's always a thing when we, an issue when we follow Jesus. Because when our eyes are open, what happens is we go, oh my gosh, I've seen this. And, and you do, you want to share it with other people, and you're pumped up, and you're trying to share with folks because you understand you know, innately that, that we're to be His representatives, we're to be His ambassadors. We've got this new way of living, and, and what happens, and we share it with our with those that we love, and they're not interested. They are not as excited about it as we are. anybody anybody experienced that? We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus tells us that that's tells us that's going to happen. You know, some people have hard hearts. Some people's hearts aren't ready for the gospel. Going to be all kinds of different responses that he's talking about here, and we shouldn't be surprised by them. And in the back of the minds, we may tend to think, well, it's my fault. No, it's not your fault. We think maybe I should have prayed more. No, not necessarily. Maybe I should have said it differently. No, not necessarily. Jesus is saying it's not the fault of the farmer. It's not the fault of the seed. It's where the seed falls. But in the same time, I want to remind you that what I just told you, the, wor- the word the farmer's casting, every time it comes out, it's God's word. And God's word is meant to, to return. But you and I don't always control that. So don't put a lot of pressure on yourself with that. Just be faithful in sharing the word. Just be faithful in, in living the word. He's explaining why some won't listen. And, and that happens to, to people who have both stepped across the line of faith and those that haven't yet stepped across the line of faith. Someone claims to be a Jesus follower, and they're doing something that in their life is, is contrary to God's word. And they say, oh, well, you know, I, that, that, that doesn't apply to me. Okay, like there's some kind of exception to the rule or to God's Word, or they say, well, I've got peace about it. I prayed about it, or, you know, or I don't think God would do that. Really? Well, he does. You see, Christians, as Christians, we can be hard pan soil as well, just as someone who's an unbeliever. And I want to give you four dangers to watch out for, because this passage isn't just binoculars for us to sit there and go, oh, look at that person. I see a hard pathway over there. This is for us to understand us. It's for us to understand we, for for me to understand myself. So four dangers to watch out for. The first one in this parable to watch out for is the danger of false confidence. The danger of false confidence. We need to understand in the framework of who Jesus was dealing with here. He uh, He was teaching to Jewish people. And you might remember he was a Jewish Messiah. He came as the Messiah to the Jews but now it's opened up to the Gentiles, and unless you're born of Jewish blood, we're all brought in, we're grafted in, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, but his audience, his initial audience during that first century was, was Jewish. Now, he did preach, he did speak to a few, um, a few Gentiles, and we're going to see that in a week or two, we're going to see a particular place called the Decapolis where he goes, where a really cool thing happens with this man that lives in the graveyard, but that's a whole nother story two weeks from now, but I've already got it on the mind because I'm excited about that story. It's a great story. Scary story, but it's a great story. So Jesus's audience was 100% Jewish, and back then there was this tendency for them to think, well, you know, I'm right with God because even though I live like hell, my son was circumcised on the eighth day, and I give to the temple, and I sacrifice, and, and I follow them, you know, I'm not as bad as those Moabites over there, you know, those people, I'm not one of them, and so this, the Jews had this false confidence, and you can read about it in the Old Testament, and with the prophets, and every time, right before the nation of Israel was, was judged, you know, God would send prophets to tell them, and to call them back, and oh no, we're Jews, even to Jesus, they say, hey, and he had to warn him. he had to say, don't, don't say that you're sons of Abraham, I can make these rocks into being sons of Abraham, but every time things would happen. If you read through the Old Testament scriptures, through the prophets, and then they would go into they'd go into captivity because they didn't get it because they trust just in the fact we're sons of Abraham, we're 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 good Jews, and so in that environment. Jesus is, is attacking false confidence even in the kingdom, and false confidence comes when, when we say, well, you know, I, I made a nod to God seven years ago, or it could be 70 years ago. It hasn't impacted my life in the last 20 years, but I, but I made a nod to God. People argue about this, and they argue about this thing called eternal security, the belief that once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. There's nothing you can do to lose it, and, and I do believe that, by the way, but I believe the scripture teaches that, but there's other people that do believe that you could lose it, and they get in arguments over, is the person a genuine Christian or not? The, the bottom line is, we're called to follow God. We're called to obedience, and we're called to show our obedience, and to show our love by our obedience, and by the fruit that we bear in our lives, when we've borne fruit. And, and you think about it in this parable, if, is the farmer happy? Is the farmer happy with a crop that sprouts up? really quickly and he says wow that's a fast crop i've ever seen and then the crop dies the next week in a heat wave is that a happy farmer no no he's lost the crop he doesn't throw a party does a farmer throw a party because we've, we've cast out lots of seed but that seed doesn't doesn't bear and well uh, oh, but wait a minute there it is there's a hailstorm. it wipes out the whole crop You think the farmer's happy? No, and after two or three years of this, you know, you're going to have a farmer that's not going to be able to farm anymore. They're going to be, they're going to be, uh, lose the farm. Farmer's devastated, and the farmer feels, uh, feels devastated when this happens. Don't have a false confidence. Now, I'm not saying here, though, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian if you struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin, Sinning does not make you not a Christian. I realize that's a double negative, and it was intentional. Every Jesus follower struggles with sin, and that's why we need the Holy Spirit. We cannot live a a life of righteousness on our own. Even the best uh, righteous person that ever lived, and compared to God's righteousness, I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about us, the best of us that ever lived, our righteousness is what the Bible says. It's filthy rags. It's, it's, a, it's, it's rags compared to his, his righteousness. And that's why we need Jesus' righteousness. That's why he went to the cross, so that, so that he could impute his righteousness to those that choose to follow him, why he paid it in full. But here's where the danger starts. We, we stop struggling with sin, and then we start defending our sin. And then sometimes when we defend our sin, uh, we find ourselves uh, setting up camp in our sin, and we still have confidence at that point. And what Jesus is saying is, I really like the fa- I like the fact that you sprouted up quickly, but don't find any confidence in that. Don't defend your sin. Don't set up camp in your sin. Don't be like the seed on shallow water that, that has no roots and it gets it, it gets burned up or it gets choked out. False confidence is one of the worst things we can have because, because the enemy loves it when we think that. We the enemy loves when we think, oh, well, you know, I made a nod to God and I don't I don't need to follow through on it, and I don't need to live. Uh, for God, each and every day, God calls us to follow in obedience, even if we follow imperfectly. And I want to emphasize that. That's the first danger: false confidence. The second danger is this: is the danger of a hardened heart. It's the danger of a hardened heart. And how does the heart get hardened? Well, I listed uh, Romans 1:18 following there on your life notes. You can go back and read that later. And and Romans 1.18 talks about what could be called a dimmer switch. How many of you have have dimmer switches in your homes? You know, you can turn the lights up up and down there. If we don't obey the light that we have, God gives us less light, not more. And if we obey the light we have, God gives us more light. So there's this this dimmer switch principle, which is sometimes why you you share your faith with someone you know and and you love, and and they don't want anything to do with it because they've not even been living up to the light that they already have. They're not ready for more light. They're not ready for more truth. And the Lord says, if you don't live up to what you have, I'm going to darken your eyes. I'm not going to give you more. You're not going to be able to see. So you can present the good news of Jesus as clear as ever, but if their heart is darkened, if their heart is hardened, nothing's going to happen. But we need to understand that that can happen to us as well. I also put in your life notes there Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 following, where it speaks to us and it uses the the example of the Israelites wandering around the wilderness because they had hardened hearts. And and they had to wander one more time, one more time around the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because of hardened hearts. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews is warning these Christians, these Jewish Christians that that had embraced the faith in Christ you got to be careful, because you may be a believer, but you still could have a hardened heart and be having to take one more turn around the desert. So when you see that, that Christian, and, and you're blown away, and you ask, how could they come to the point where you show them the Word of God, and, and, and they don't want to listen, and they think it doesn't apply to them, how'd they get there? Well, they got there by disobeying what they already knew. They went from struggling to defending and setting up camp, and when we set up camp, the heart just gets even harder. Third danger to watch out for, and that's a shallow faith, a shallow faith. The rocky soil that he talks about in that parable, you know, it's very similar to the soil that we have here in our region. Um, any of you try to garden here? I realize many of you are snowbirds and aren't down here very much, but I, I love gardening. I have a garden for a long time. It's in my blood, you know, my 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 ancestors over the past 200 years were either farmers or they were carpenters. And even those that were carpenters had, had big gardens and stuff like that. And so when I came out here, I realized very quickly you can't dig in this soil in my front yard. And so what I did is I had to build up these raised beds. And some of you have seen the raised beds that I have there. Um, when, when you have the kind of soil you have here is the same soil that you had in Israel. It's a very shallow soil, and the roots don't go deep in it. My braised beds are probably about 12, 15 inches high there to, that I have to fill and, and renew the soil every year or two to so that it's good soil. Over there in this, this natural soil that he's talking about here, you you, ha- you have shallow soil, and because of that, the things don't last. And he's talking, he's likening this to a shallow faith. What happens is the seed germinates quickly, and and it starts, and it, you see the green, but then there's no place for the roots to go because the hardness the hardness of the, of the soil because the soil is so shallow. And the parallel to that is, is an emotional faith. An emotional faith. We've probably all seen people like this. They really get emotional about, about Jesus and they go to a worship service and you know, they're all happy and jumping up and down and all this stuff. And all, but it's, it's a shallow faith. It's not deep. The roots don't go down deep. It's, it's not a conviction faith. And Jesus was talking about people that for a while they, they appear to have it, and probably even some of these people he's talking to now after these parables, and he's explaining ahead of time why some of them are going to fall away. Why some are going to fall away. I've always said it's not how high you jump, it's how far you run after you hit the ground, after your feet come down. You know, right now, he says, you're loving the miracles. You're living in this zone of, you know, God is good when life is good. But he says, I'm going to warn you, the troubles, the troubles are going to come. He says, when persecution, not if persecution. He says, when persecution comes. And he said, you will have troubles in this world. I'm going to be with you. I won't keep you from trouble, but I will walk with you through the trouble. But if I bought the lie of Satan that following God means that every day I'm going to win the lottery, then, then Satan has me right where he wants me. Not because I'm buying lottery tickets. You're missing the point there, if that's what you get hung up on the lottery tickets. But if I, if I think everything's going to be honky-dory, we're not, I'm not understanding the kingdom. Because then when things do happen, I'm going to lose my trust, I'm going to lose my faith in God. I'm going to say, oh God, God was so good, you know, where's God now? Where's God now that I'm not winning the lottery? Where's God now that I got fired from that job that I, that I got last year? He says, watch out. I want to tell you why some of those fall away because they had a God is good when life is good faith, not a conviction faith based upon the word of God, based upon their rootedness in the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It was just something to, per, to, to pursue for their joy, for their pleasure, but it's also a warning. Dig your roots deep. Be ready. Fourth danger, the fourth danger is a secondary faith, a secondary faith, and by secondary faith, I mean a faith where God is second. This one comes and dies quickly. It's when you're choked by thorns, and and this is a much, much uh, slower process. He says for some, they're going to look like they're really moving along in the kingdom. They enter the kingdom, God's at work in their life, but over a long period of time, you're going to slowly see them fade away, and that's what's happening when the weeds slowly overtake the garden. Ever have weeds in your garden? You, you need to, you need to watch them. You can't wait, you can't just weed every, every three months. If you're not watching it, the weeds will overtake your garden very quickly. So will mint. Yeah, I learned last, last year when we planted mint in a quarter of our garden, it tried to take over the whole thing. Mint grows quickly too. Anyway, another story. And what are those weeds he's talking about? He says they're the weeds of worry. They're the weeds of deceitfulness of riches. The, 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 you know, Matthew and, and Luke uh, add to this when they tell this parable. They're the weeds of the pleasures of the world. And I want you to catch some. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong necessarily with a, with a little bit of worry. There's nothing wrong with pursuing riches. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. God gives us all those. Appropriate worry causes me to prepare for what, for what may come. And if you don't have appropriate worry, you're foolish. You know, I hope, that, I hope everybody here has, has gallons of water. I hope everybody here is, has tens of can, uh, 10 cans of food and all, because in the places we lived before where hurricanes came, we had a warning about hurricanes, and hurricanes were seasonal. Here in the desert, we've got an earthquake fault right, running right under us, and so we should have water, we should have food uh, ready. We're foolish if we don't have that ready. And if you're here just briefly, you know, for a few weeks or a few months, go ahead and get it. And when you're done with it and you leave, give it to us, and we'll give it to the food bank down the street, okay? But you need to prepare. Appropriate worry is good. It's inappropriate worry when I panic or inappropriate worry whenever I don't do anything and all of a sudden I want God to, to take care of me. Uh-oh, the earthquake just came, and I have nothing. My water's out, you know, and, I, and I have, I have nothing. You know, I, can't, I don't have any water to drink. The same with the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of income, saving, enjoying things or whatever. It's, it's a fine thing, but it's not if it, if it doesn't make us more grateful, if it doesn't make us more generous. It's poison if it makes us more competitive or makes us more greedy or, or makes us stingy. And you know, if we think the one with the most toys wins, you know, that'll poison our soul. That'll kill our soul. And pleasure in First Timothy chapter 6, you know, we're told the Lord provides everything for our enjoyment. The Lord is the author of pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pleasure until I decide that it's so important that I make spiritual compromises to get it. Until I seek it in ways that God doesn't want me to. When I make spiritual compromises to to solve my worry or to to increase my net worth or spiritual compromises to get get, uh, pleasure, at that point I've planted myself right in the midst of the weeds. And the weeds will choke you out every time. Four dangers to watch out for. Now, I want to quickly go through these three other things that you need to know. Some of you, as I said, are panicked right now. Don't worry. We're going to get done here. It's going to be quicker, I think. But the first one here, the most important one here, this was, was to get through this parable, because this is the one that Jesus said is the most important one, because if you don't understand this one, you won't understand the rest. These others we've already touched on a little bit as we've gone, gone through. They're kind of self-explanatory. But the second thing he tells us about the kingdom is the lamp parable. The lamp parable. And it's this. There are no secrets. There are no secrets. When I was in the military, we had this thing that we called the New York Times test. Uh, as an officer and then later a senior officer, I was taught. Well, it passed the New York Times test. And the whole point was you never want to do something that you wouldn't want to have to read about on the front page of the New York Times or you wouldn't want other people reading about on the front page of the New York Times. And would you agree with me that, that, life, that, that life is better uh, when we live like mom's watching? Okay? Moms are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Life's better when we live like mom's watching. And the thing is, even if mom's not watching, God's watching, okay? It's really what he's saying is that in a culture where they had tons of hypocrisy and the political and religious leaders had a public face and a private face, Jesus was always challenging, you know, he was challenging them about the differences between what they did publicly versus what they did in private. And we do the same thing today. Human nature hasn't changed, and and with social media and the archiving of this and all that, you know, we've learned, you know, people can say something 15 years ago, and it can come back to bite them in the backside. Um, You know, because they didn't realize, you know, the half-life that stuff like that has nowadays. We've got also this extra problem where we've decided that, that privacy, privacy is an inalienable right. You know, we, we, we almost worship privacy, particularly here in America, and, and, and it's, it's and I don't mean to be political, I'm trying to be scriptural. The right to privacy is the basis for the decision that allows unborn children to be killed. I'm not trying to mess with anybody there, but I'm just saying that's, that's what, that, what Roe v. Wade was based on, was a right to privacy. And I, and I say that with all graciousness and all, all love and charity, if, if you've had to go through, through that. But it's just, um, I've never been able to have an, an attorney help me understand how you get from here to here on that. We answer hard questions. We tell people, well, it's, 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 none, of, it's none of your business. And I want to tell you, if we walk in the kingdom, if, we, if we're in the kingdom, the Bible recognizes that we live in community, and what we do affects those who are around us. It says, we're to confess our sins one to another, to lift one another up, to help one another, to encourage one another. We're to be real and to be vulnerable with one another. In the kingdom, there are no secrets. It's only a question of when it's going to be exposed. And he says, you need to live like that. The third one, the parable of wheat, it's teaching us that God is at work even when we cannot see it. God is at work even when we cannot see it. And this is incredibly important to, to hold on to. I talked about this a couple weekends ago, so I'm not going to go much into it right now. You know, it, it, he says it seems to grow all by itself, and that's how God is at work in, in your life and in the world. And it's also why, why I'm an optimist. You know, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm not an ostrich. I'm an optimist, okay? An ostrich sticks their head in the sand and pretends that there's no danger there. An optimist says, it may look like everything is breaking loose, but I know that God is in control of who's in control. And I know how the long game ends. I know how it ends, even if I don't like the way the game is going right now. And this is incredibly important because Christians throughout history in times of persecution have held on to the blessed hope of Christ, that in the end we win. They understood that God is at work even when we have no idea, even when it may look like He's asleep. If I don't think God is at work right now, I tend to, to want to take things into my own hands. But when I understand that He's at work, even when it feels like He isn't, I keep leaning on Him instead of leaning on my own understanding. And then finally, the fourth parable, the mustard seed. The principle we need to understand here is God uses small things to produce great things. God uses small things to produce great things. You know, God draws beautiful pictures with broken pencils. Would you agree? We sometimes think that God would do so much better, oh, if only this superstar athlete or this famous actress or actor came to Jesus. Or it would be so much better if politically this happened or or that happened. And at the end of the day, God is not asking for our resources. He already owns them. Scripture tells us He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the Bitcoin in the world and all the other stuff too. God's not asking for our skill set. He's not asking for anything. He's just asking for our obedience. He's asking for us to follow Him. He's asking for us to bear fruit. Jesus gathered a small band of people around him. These people would later be persecuted. They would later have to run for their life. Right now in, in, in Mark chapter 3, chapter 4, the crowds are still coming and they're, they're yelling, rah, rah, Jesus, but later the same crowds are going to turn on him and they're going to yell for him to be crucified. They're going to call for his death. And when that happened, when it all looked like El was lost, when it looks like the insignificant thing is just going to die off, God brings glory to himself. He he doesn't take the best of us. He doesn't take the the, the things that we look at as the best in the world. He takes the most insignificant, and he brings great things out of it. So here's what God's asking you to do. He's asking you to yield to the Spirit, to his Spirit. He's asking you to, to, to bear fruit, to trust him enough by doing what he says. It may not seem like much, but that's your mustard seed. Four parables. I hope you can understand them, because if you don't, you're not going to understand any of the rest. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv min.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.